0: Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, October 29. I'm Tom Tilley. And today we're going to brief you on the Aussie scientists who defied China and told the world about COVID.
1: I felt a lot of responsibility because I I really wanted to, um, you know, I had to do this right. I thought I've I've got to get this data out there. I think the world needs to see this.
0: The dramatic release of the COVID-19 genome sequence in just a moment. First, Annika's here as we bring you the big stories of the day.
2: The Qatari government says it regrets any distress caused by the invasive search of passengers at Doha Airport while trying to find the mother of an abandoned baby.
0: But the statement also says that the search of the 18 women, including 13 Australians, was necessary to prevent the perpetrators of a horrible crime from escaping.
2: They revealed the baby was found in a plastic bag in a rubbish bin in what appeared to be a shocking and appalling attempt to kill her. Yesterday, Scott Morrison condemned Qatar.
1: It was appalling. As yes. father of daughters, I could only shudder at the thought that any woman, Australian
0: or otherwise, would be subjected to that. And this came up in Senate estimates yesterday where Foreign Minister Maurice Payne defended not calling Qatar's Foreign Minister about the invasive procedures until an investigation's finalised. What do you make of that? Who who did she call, Annika?
2: She called the Qatari ambassador here. He's been contacted about it. But in terms of her counterpart, which is usually how we deal with foreign governments, she hasn't called the Qataris yet. She said she's going to wait for the end of that investigation. And a few people in Labor were pretty critical of that decision.
0: Yeah, well, she was trying to sound tough, right? Like she was doing everything she could, but clearly she hasn't.
2: Look, there's not a lot we can do when other countries do something like this. This is the crux of it. So there is an investigation but I can't see what's going to come out of it and how that's going to change what happened.
0: Yeah, there were also reports that women from other countries um, from up to 10 planes may have also been subjected to the same medical examinations. And the deceased pedophile Jeffrey Epstein has been linked to Kevin Rudd.
2: Yeah, it turns out that Epstein donated $650,000 to the International Peace Institute. Now, that's the New York-based think tank that Kevin Rudd has chaired for the past six years.
0: Yeah, Rudd says he's blindsided by the revelations and that he doesn't ever recall meeting Epstein, although they were on the same teleconference years ago.
2: He's now introduced a character test for people making private donations and launched an independent review into that donation. Bomb threats via email have forced students to evacuate from more than 20 schools. The schools were in Sydney and regional New South Wales, This is what Police Minister David Elliott had to say.
1: It certainly takes a small and demented mind to interrupt HSC students uh, after a traumatic year during a pandemic when the nation is at a heightened state of alert in terrorism.
0: There are more exams happening today and police are looking at new protocols, including searching exam halls beforehand and not evacuating students unless they think the threat is legitimate. And less than a week to go till the US election, and Jennifer Aniston has given her fans some voting advice. Don't vote for Kanye West.
2: In an interview with Vanity Fair, Aniston said it's not funny to vote for Kanye, who's still on the ballot in some states. Now, he was quick to hit back on Twitter, of course, saying friends wasn't funny either, which, of course, is wrong.
0: All right, Annika, we'll catch you on tomorrow's briefing. In just a moment, I'm going to bring you a really fascinating interview with an unlikely hero. Okay, now to the amazing story of the Australian scientists who defied China and shared the genome sequence of COVID 19 with the world. Now, the story starts back in early January when the very first signs of the pandemic were just starting to emerge.
1: Chinese authorities have traced a new deadly virus back to this
2: seafood market in the city of Wuhan.
0: As of Thursday morning, this city has been cut off from the rest of the country.
2: The WHO not confirming, but also not ruling out a coronavirus.
0: On January 1, the Hunan wet market in Wuhan was closed down after an alarming number of workers were hospitalized with respiratory problems. Four days later, a Chinese scientist called Professor Zhan sequenced the genome of this new coronavirus. Now, he shared that information with his Australian colleague, Professor Eddie Holmes, who said that the Chinese government had told them not to publish the information. As you're about to hear, Eddie Holmes was adamant the world needed this information ASAP. So he defied the Chinese authorities and hit publish. You're about to find out how that all unfolded. Professor Eddie Holmes is a virologist from Sydney University. He's the author of over 600 peer-reviewed papers. And this week, he was awarded New South Wales Scientist of the Year. Eddie, thanks for joining us on the briefing and congrats on your award. Thanks, Tom. Now, in the lead up to that moment where you shared the genomic sequence for COVID-19, what work had you already been doing with Professor Zhang at Fidan University, Shanghai?
1: We've been working together for... Um, about eight, eight or so years now, and what we do very often is go out into animal populations, and I've done it in China, I've done it in Australia as well, and we sample animals to see what viruses they have in those species, because some of those could actually then jump to humans. And we've also done lots of work looking at um, humans who have unusual diseases. So directly before this particular outbreak, we were working around the, um, the Wuhan area, and this province called Hubei in China. And we actually had a project looking at people who had respiratory disease who were reporting sick to one of the big hospitals in 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 Wuhan. And we were taking things called lung wash samples um, from those people to try and work out what was causing their disease. So we were kind of exactly in the right place at the right time, or the wrong place at the wrong time, when you look <laughs> at it, for when this um, outbreak took place.
0: We're going to get into detail about the genomic sequence and and when it was released, and and the pressures around that, and the impact of releasing it. But first, can you explain what a genome sequence actually is?
1: Yeah. So what it is is it's the genetic code, the instructions that make us us or a virus virus. So for humans, we have three billion of these bits of um, DNA sequence, okay, that encode make you and I look like what we do. Viruses are much simpler, and they only have about. 10,000 little bits of, of, of data. And coronavirus is actually quite big for RNA viruses. There are about 30, so RNA is a, a, a material like DNA, but slightly different. So coronaviruses are RNA viruses, and they have these th- about 30,000 little bits of RNA signal that, that, that make them encode the proteins they have and the instructions for how they go about their life cycle. And I should say also, that's critical if you're developing a test, you tests test for, for COVID-19 or you want a vaccine, you need to know what that genome sequence is. That's kind of like the starting point for what you do.
0: Okay, so your colleague sequenced the the genome of what we now know is, is COVID-19 on January 5. Uh, that was about four days after the Wuhan wet market had actually been shut down, but known case numbers were still very low at that point, less than 100. Tell us about the moment Professor Zhang, your Chinese colleague, showed you the COVID-19 genome sequence.
1: Well and that's a very important point you made. At that time numbers were 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 very low. And so, we were, although we knew this was important, we didn't know it was going to be the, the, the pandemic we've got today. You know, that wasn't clear at that time. So, what happened was uh, he, the patient we, we we first sequenced was admitted to the hospital um, on December the 26th, and they took this, this lung wash sample. Then the sample was sent to, to Shanghai, and Professor Zhang's team sequenced it. It took about 40 hours to get the genome sequence, and that was finished on January the 5th. We talked by telephone on that day, and he he showed me what he had. It was immediately obvious that it was a coronavirus. And even more striking, it was closely related to the coronavirus that caused SARS back in, people might remember, 2002, 2003. So at that point we thought, oh my God, this is like SARS coming back again. Between ourselves, we were calling it SARS, like you know Mm. SARS-2. So what we then did on that first day, we thought, okay, we have to tell people Exactly what this is. So we, we Professor Zhang, told the Ministry of Health in China, this is a coronavirus. It's likely to be respiratory and therefore people should take precautions because this could this could spread. So it wasn't till
0: January 11 that you actually shared this genomic sequence with the world. So what happened in between and how much pressure was there not to
1: publish it? <laughs> So the, the thing to remember is that Professor Zhang and, and his team and me, we, we were not the only people doing, doing this genomic sequencing, trying to work out what the virus was. And there, a variety of other groups were doing it. And they also had, had the same information. So it was all done kind of simultaneously. And who, who got it did exactly first is a kind of um, a, a different story. So we, we had got the, the data and the authorities in China had said they didn't want anyone to publicise information about the outbreak. And I think they wanted to, I think they thought they could control it locally. I think they, they didn't want any panic. They didn't want information leaking out. So they they put on this kind of gag order, um, preventing publication. So they got to the point where people knew it was a coronavirus. Authorities admitted it was, but they didn't say what one it was. And that seemed to me absolutely ridiculous that we were in a position where we kind of knew something about it, but not everything. And people were really desperate to know exactly what it was and what the genome sequence was. So um, I then thought we have to just break this embargo. We have to public, we have to release these data because people need to see. So after some, some two or throw uh, eventually on the Saturday morning in, in Sydney on the 11th of January, I, I uploaded it to a website and posted it for the world to see and tweeted about it. And that was the kind of like the first real bit of science that was released that people could then work on.
0: So you were going against the Chinese authorities there. Was your heart pounding as you pressed that button to publish?
1: Yeah, no, I felt a lot of responsibility because I I really wanted to, um, you know, I had to do this right. I thought I've, I've got to get this data out there. I think the world needs to see this. And I was actually, I was at that particular point. I was, I think, I was more concerned that I, I, I was, doing it correctly and not uploading something wrong. So um, there was a lot of pressure. And I should say to me. So I, you know, I live, I live in Australia, and it's, it's um, not the same as Professor Zhang. So it's him and his team in China were in, under much more pressure than I was. And so um, it was a much bigger thing for them. And so much bigger thing for them to break the embargo than, than it was for me, for me here in Australia. So
0: was there any backlash from the Chinese authorities either uh, towards you or, or your colleague
1: there in China? Uh, not towards me. Um, there was um, some backlash that's been publicised against Zhang. I'm I'm not, unfortunately, at liberty to, to discuss it because there are, ongoing um things going on i can't kind of prejudice what's happening there but it was not did not go down particularly well for a while anyway when do you think they would have
0: published it you did it on january 11 how long do you think they were going to hang on to this information
1: I don't know. So they they then released their data um, about 36 hours after. I think that what they probably wanted was to present a complete story, the whole thing. We kind of forced their hand to get it out early. And what I think they did, I think it was not an unreasonable thing. I think they felt that they could control this outbreak because it was like the first SARS virus. And the first SARS virus, the key thing was people only transmitted when they were symptomatic. But, and that made it easy to kind of like, you could ring fence people who were infected you can kind of quarantine them and that would stop it. In this forest, as you well know, people are asymptomatic when they transmit and that makes it so much harder to c- control. And they didn't get that at that time. No one kind of figured that out. So I think they thought they could probably control it lo- you know, um, easily at, in a quick time and then release all the information. But it just the viruses didn't behave in the way they thought. So
0: when you first saw the sequence, could you tell it was going to be worse than SARS in two thousand and two? And do you think every day that we didn't have this information ended up being critical in our response?
1: No, at that time, when I saw the data, I knew it was. I knew it was like SARS. I knew pretty. I knew it was going to be human. There was some debate about could it pass from human to human, and I, that was obvious to me from kind of day one. I mean, it's clear that this was going to be a human respiratory disease. But no, not from the data at that point could we really say people were transmitting when they didn't have symptoms. That took some some weeks to to, to work out. Um, the the next question is a key one. Did it really make a huge difference in terms of the way this pandemic yeah. turned out? That's a very hard question to, to, to know. And I think that they, like I say, I do think they miscalled it in the sense they thought it was probably easy to control and it really was. But I think that was probably a justifiable miscall. I think most people would have done the same. And then what they did on January 23rd, which was pretty unprecedented, was they locked down the whole of Wuhan. Now you've been, you're in Mel- Melbourne, know that very well, but mm. Wuhan was the first city to do that. And that was quite a spectacular thing to, to do. But unfortunately, it was just too late in, 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 the, in the process. So how all this played out, would it have stopped it? It's really difficult to, to say at the moment. I think, and also, I think another thing that happened is that a lot of governments didn't really take it seriously until too late. So what was the reaction when you published
0: this information and, and what impact did it have to get this out of there? How did it help us?
1: The impact was immediately was was, was tremendous, okay, from scientists because they could first see what this was and it was the you know like the starting point in 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 the kind of fight back right the first you know it's the first kind of breach of the enemy defenses and i remember someone tweeting back to my tweet saying now we're off and so what it meant it gave so so the sorry blueprint-
0: just just one detail there so where exactly did you post it. What website? What, what? Uh, Who I've did you send it to? I posted a website
1: to? called virological.org. And that was so, a friend of mine in the UK runs his website. It's like a free, like a bulletin board to discuss viruses. It's quite well known. And we post lots of information up there. And it just seemed like a, and it's an open access, very quick, very simple. It just seemed like a very easy place where anyone, anywhere could quickly um, download it. So I posted it there. And in my initial sort of tweet, 'Cause tweets the way you do these pandemics is so quick. I, I kind of flagged that website on on Twitter. So then people people could see that in the in, in the tweets. They could go to the website and just download the sequence. Wow, what a what a world we're living on where you just put oh, this information on Twitter. Well no, and you know, and that's one of the things that's come out of this actually, Thomas. So is so is so dramatic is that social media, I mean it's good and bad as social media, and I know the bad quite well now. But um, <laughs> it's processing much faster than governments can do things or health agencies or scientific journals. It's such, in a pandemic, speed is of the essence. So mm. it's no wonder it's become this kind of amazing forum for, for sharing data.
0: Okay, you hinted at uh, the backlash online there. You said earlier in the interview that you haven't had any backlash from Chinese authorities. Um, but But what about... From other people,
1: yeah. So I've had, I mean, so so that what happened was then, and, and this is a slightly different story. So then, people were very happy with 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 uh, with with uh, yeah, um, the least the data, and then 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 as this conspiracy started circulating, which was very predictable that the virus had had come out from a um, laboratory in Wuhan. So rather than being a natural event, it clearly is natural to us, and so we, we wrote a paper saying this is a, this is a natural virus. There's no evidence of a, of a lab escape. And that has very much annoyed some of the conspiracy theorists and some of the radical political groups, and so that's led to some sort of um, a fair bit of trolling.
0: You were an honorary visiting professor at Fudan University in Shanghai, where your, yeah. your colleague was working. Will you ever be allowed back?
1: Um, that's a good question. I don't know actually. Um, we'll play it by ear. We'll see what happens in the next in the next um, few years. It's it's. Uh, I hate to say this, but this is we've got a long way to go in this pandemic, right? So time will tell how the political situation will um, turn out, and we'll, we'll I'll just have to wait and see. Eddie, it's an
0: amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing it with
1: us on The Briefing. Uh, my pleasure,
0: Tom. That was Professor Eddie Holmes, such a, an incredible story. Those moments where he was sitting there with that information and then hitting published on, on Twitter of all places, uh, and he told the story very well too. Um, It will be really interesting to see how this plays out for his colleague, Professor Zhang. Those critical days between January 5 and January 11 have been poured over and will continue to be looked at as blame flies around about how this virus was handled by Chinese authorities. Thank you so much for listening to that story. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Tomorrow on The Briefing, how Magda Zabansky became the target of right-wing extremists.